This episode is brought to you in part by The Table Podcast from the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. I'm Daryl Bach, one of the hosts, and I invite you to join us as we discuss issues of God and culture, which includes anything and everything. Listen on your podcast app or at dts.edu slash the table. This episode is part of a long series exploring the rise of Christian fundamentalism in the United States. Today, we're discussing the film Inherit the Wind which is a dramatization of the Scopes Monkey Trial, which I covered in the previous two episodes. This episode will make a lot more sense if you start with those. Also, this is not edited like a normal truce episode. It's just a discussion with interesting people. It doesn't represent the normal style of the show, but I think you just might like it. Okay, here we go. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Truce Podcast, and also a special episode crossover of Seeing and Believing. My name is Chris Starin. I'm the host of the Truce Podcast, and I'm joined with two excellent film nerds, if I can use that word lovingly. Uh, can <laughs> y'all allowed. introduce yourselves? It's allowed. Okay, good. Can y'all introduce yourselves? I'm Kevin McLenathan. I'm one half of the uh, host team at Seeing and Believing, just a film and television podcast. It's been going for... Gosh, about seven years now, eight years. I think I, so. I've lost track. I've lost track of time. It's been going on for a long time. I'm Sarah Welch Larson. I am the other half of the Seeing and Believing podcast. I actually just officially joined Seeing and Believing a little bit over a year ago. So Kevin is the old timer around here, <laughs> and yeah, really love watching movies, talking about them, looking you know looking for the sacred on screen, and then also occasionally arguing about uh, whether or not like what we saw was what we thought we saw, if that makes any sense. And my name again is Chris Starin. I'm the host of The Truce Podcast. It's a history show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. And we ha- happen to be at this interesting spot in my season uh, where there's this nexus of film and theater and also history that where it collides with the Scopes Monkey Trial of 1925. And uh, so rather than just have sort of one of my normal episodes, I thought I'd reach out to the Seeing and Believing team and see what their thoughts are on the movie version of Inherit the Wind. I'm so excited to do this crossover. But first, I thought we'd talk about just sort of a brief summary of what the historic events are around the Scopes trial. I had a whole season leading up to this and included talks about World War One and the massive changes of society that led up to 1925. And I mean, imagine it's 1925 and you've got airplanes, you've got automobiles, you've got electricity and telephones and radios and all of this technology. And even a hundred years earlier, you're talking about horses and buggies. You're you're talking about old, old technology where somebody even several thousand years earlier might have felt okay in the, you know, the year 1800. In, in 1925, it's like a completely different world. You take somebody from the year zero and plop them into 1925, it's a completely different world. All this technology and stuff. And, and so that's kind of one of the things we've spent a lot of time talking about this season, uh, but that leads us up to new ideas like those of philosophies of like Friedrich Nietzsche and the Leopold and Loeb murder that I had an episode about where two guys took Nietzsche's philosophy to its sort of illogical conclusion and hmm. ended up murdering a boy because they thought they were a more evolved creature. And, uh, and so in 1925, there's a law passed in Tennessee, the Butler Act, it's House Bill 185, which made it, and I, I'll just go ahead and quote it. Section one says, 
be it enacted by the General Assembly of the State of Tennessee, that it shall be unlawful for any teaching in any of the universities, normals, and other public schools of the state, which are supported in whole or in part by the public school funds of the state, to teach any theory that denies the story of the divine creation of man as taught in the Bible, and to teach instead that man has descended from a lower order of animals. So it it made it illegal to teach evolution in public schools. There was an article in the newspaper the ACLU had put out asking for somebody to test the law in Tennessee. So a group of businessmen get together in this soda fountain, and they agree that they're going to have the young local teacher, John Scopes, say that he taught evolution in public schools, which he actually didn't do. They arrested him there in the soda fountain, had like a gentlemanly agreement, maybe the nicest arrest ever in the history of the world. And then they took Scopes on a publicity tour of the United States. Like he didn't actually go to jail, didn't spend any time there. Then two of the most famous men in the country come on board to to, to spar it out in the trial, uh, William Jennings Bryan and Clarence Darrow, uh, both of whom appear a bunch in my season if you want to learn more about it. But that's that's basically the rundown of the Scopes monkey trial. And this play written by Jerome Lawrence and Robert E. Lee, not that Robert E. Lee, it's a different one. It comes out in 1955 and then was it became this movie starring Spencer Tracy in 1960. And that's that's the movie we're here to talk about, which as I understand it is very similar to the play. That is the basic history of what what happened. I want to go now into a discussion with y'all about the movie version. What did you think about this as a movie. Well, the the thing the thing about this movie is I feel like you know there there's definitely a place for movies that are based on history to really play fast and loose with the facts in the interest of telling a story that speaks to a different truth. So if it doesn't have historical truth, maybe at least like tells us something true about human beings or society or any number of things. And I think that can be really valuable too. Mm-hmm. I think maybe the the issue here, if you're not, you know, pulling your hair out over historical inaccuracies, because I haven't dug into it as deeply as you have, Chris, obviously. But I, I think Kramer is he he kind of he likes to stack the deck a little bit where it, in the performances the, he's not consent just to make the William Jennings Bryan stand in kind of wrong. He has to be wrong and also kind of buffoonish. So we, he, the, the actor who's playing him, Frederick March seems to have been directed to kind of be as pompous as possible, you know, to, to be kind of this, this bloviating almost fool who just sort of spouts a lot of, you know, fundamentalist rhetoric and kind of, you know, has his, thumbs literally hooked into his suspenders when he's not stuffing his face with fried chicken and he's constantly got the sheen of sweat on his bald spot. It's all just, it's a little bit much. And I think that's maybe where it falls down for me, regardless of the history is just that it, it feels like some of the characters are accorded the grace of being seen by the film as human and others are more just, they're there to be bowling pins to get knocked down. (laughs) Hmm. The character of Rachel, and who's who's uh, supposed to be Bertram Cates, who's uh, John Scopes' stand-in in the movie, supposed to be his his girlfriend in the in the film, but she didn't actually exist. Uh, she she was not a historic figure. John Scopes didn't have a girlfriend at the time of the Scopes trial. That was something kind of created 
for emotional impact. And there were mm-hmm. a lot of things in the movie that were created in that way. Even the way that H.L. Uh, Mencken, who was the real life figure that was portrayed by Gene Kelly in the movie, E.K. Hornback, they they make him look like a smart aleck. And he's definitely like a loner in the movie. But in real life, uh, the real H.L. Mencken was actually an anti-Semite and uh, mm. a pretty lousy guy <laughs> from everything that I read about him. But he seems sort of like this enlightened, righteous character, even though he's sad in the film, like kind of lonely character. He, he's, he's held up as this kind of I don't bastion of righteousness in some ways. So that that was also kind of an interesting way to portray that. Um I was also curious, did you did you feel like this there was a sort of a north and south component to this movie? Oh, 100%. And actually it drove me nuts because that isn't a Tennessee accent in the slightest. <laughs> What are your credentials, Sarah? How do you know what a Tennessee accent is like? (laughs) Well, I actually lived in Memphis for three and a half years when I was growing up. This would have been when I was in middle school, I think. So I'm more familiar with a Western Tennessee accent, but it sounded like a lot of very fake, slippy Georgia accents to me when I was listening Mm. to a lot of the dialogue. I was a linguistics major in college, so paying attention to the way that people speak and how they, they go about speaking is something that is very important. So this, I found that piece probably more distracting even than the historical inaccuracies. <laughs> With your linguistics background, I'd be curious to know, did you did you notice that only some people had a Southern accent, even though they yeah. were in the same town? Yeah, I did. And that, I think, almost bothered me a little bit more. But I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't think this movie is quite going for verisimilitude when it's <laughs> talking about all of the different characters within the town. Um, I think it was just whoever felt brave enough to put on a fake Southern accent was going to try to do it. And then it was going to slip no matter what. Yeah, I mean, I, I didn't live in Tennessee at all. But there's one moment when the Brian character is getting his big welcome parade in front of City Hall. And, you know, some citizen of the town like comes up and gives him, I don't know, some flat gives his wife some flowers or something. And she says, you know, just a throwaway line. She's just, you know, basically a glorified extra. But the the line was just she was trying so hard, bless her heart, to do a southern accent. It was just it was not hitting. It was <laughs> right. and I think that's kind of the townspeople in this film are definitely they're not they're kind of just there to be a rabble. And yeah. mm-hmm. that that at times made me feel uncomfortable, especially when you've got, you know, Gene Kelly, the most one of the most handsome, likable guys of of the era, just sort of cracking wise about how the town's a hellhole. And just I kind of just I don't know. It, it didn't quite sit right with me. And it's uh, maybe another false note for me with the with the film as a whole. What's also wildly historically inaccurate, <laughs> the, the townspeople of Dayton, Tennessee, were actually really welcoming to to all the members involved, and mm-hmm. we're excited about it. And like I said at the, at the beginning with that little history bit, uh, the town actually organized the whole thing as a publicity stunt. They they were trying to draw people in to the town of Dayton to to bring notoriety because uh, business was leaving the town and they saw this opportunity to be like, if we have a test case here in town, it'll draw public attention and people will want to you know move here and do business here and spend their money. Uh, so the town was actually excited about the event happening. They were really welcome. I When I went there to 
to actually interview people in the locations, it sounded like there there was sort of a love hate relationship currently for the Scopes trial uh, because mm. it still does draw people to Dayton to come see the museum. And there was a brewery that had like newspapers of the event on the wall and had burgers and stuff named for monkeys, and uh, it was it was really charming. <laughs> so they like embraced it, but. Uh, the the folks I spoke to uh, in the episodes uh, had told me that you know there's also sort of a like let's get over it mentality in uh, in the town uh, and the mm-hmm. town Dayton actually is really charming I recommend people go there it's like a fishing haven today uh, people go there to uh, ride motorboats and and go fishing so it's it's kind of a cool spot but uh, back to the north south thing. The, the juxtaposition in the movie is interesting because uh, they make slights towards people from the city, and then they also make slights of people coming from the north down to the south. But fundamentalism, at least the early days that I've spent most of the season on, was mostly a northern phenomenon. It wasn't in the south. Hmm. So it's kind of an odd thing that they're going for here that, that didn't really exist. And, and these, these guys were invited guests. They weren't, you know, lawyers who came down here to tell all people how to live. It was, <laughs> it, they were invited guests and they were treated really well. So that it is, does seem like a bit of a reach. And it's, it's even odd too, because uh, it's very clear that they are talking about William Jennings Bryan, the, the Matthew Harrison Brady character is representing William Jennings Bryan. And somebody shouts out, we voted for you three times. And actually the town didn't vote for Bryan because he was a Mm. Democrat and that was a Republican area. So there are a lot of little moments like that, that that actually didn't happen and add a lot of complexity to the story. So yeah, they, they did welcome William Jennings Bryan to the town. There wasn't a big marching parade through, but there, there was a warm welcome for him. But there are other things like scopes didn't actually teach evolution. In the end of the movie, they point out to Matthew Harrison Brady, uh, oh, that that there is a radio microphone. That's something you won't need. Well, actually, William Jennings Bryan had a radio show. Like He, he knew what he was <laughs> doing, and he, he didn't die in the courtroom. He died shortly after the trial, just a few days later. But like I said, H.L. Mencken was a racist, uh, not just anti-Semitic, but also did not like African-Americans. Uh, but to be fair, <laughs> neither did William Jennings Bryan. So there are a lot of historic inaccuracies and heavy-handedness. Why Why do you think uh, maybe a, a fundamentalist audience wouldn't like this film? Well, I, it feels as though this film is not particularly subtle or willing to go into really complex territory, I think. So a lot of that North-South divide, a lot of that city-country divide, a lot of the creation versus evolution divide feels as though it's all attempting to work towards the same point and real life is a lot more complicated than that. And I agree that a lot of really good art is very complex and is willing to do more than just try to push everything into kind of this false binary that this this movie is really working with. At the same time, I can totally see why they would have made the choices that they had made in order to simplify the movie and draw it to a point in order to make a point. Um, I think like you'd mentioned, this really is also a reaction to McCarthyism. Yeah. And probably would have been read as such. If you're going to be making a movie that is ostensibly about historical events, but is also really about something that is happening like in the here and now, depending on how you want to go about it, if you really want to drive your point home, it's it's just so much easier to do that if you have everything 
else sort of reinforcing and shoring up that point and shoring up that argument, especially if you think that there are other people out there who are not necessarily going to agree with you. Like you don't want to give the other side the ammo that they need in order to be able to discount your story or your work of art if you're doing this as kind of art as dialectic, which this kind of feels like to me. I had sort of a revelation today while I was at work that this is essentially the reverse side of God's Not Dead, the films. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I, I came home and I was typing and I was like, has anybody else thought this? And apparently other articles have been written. There have been other people who've picked up on it. Have you seen the God's Not Dead, at least one of, one of the films? I've I've seen <laughs> I've not seen the first or the third one by bad fortune I actually saw the second one in the theater okay. so wow. oh, that's man. the extent of my experience yeah. with the franchise I'm yeah. familiar with the chain emails but I've been able to avoid those movies so and they are very heavy handed but kind of like Kevin was saying you can see why they would want to be from their point of view mm -hmm. and in a lot of ways it's like both sides are not listening to each other and this is what how they would depict the other side, uh, the, you know, like the, the godless people coming to take away our rights, or else the godly people coming to take away our rights. They are they are kind of bookends uh, of a conversation. They're both extremes of the, of an argument. They're both equally heavy handed, which I think is interesting. I I find it interesting too, though, that inherit the wind kind of tries to make a gesture towards that both sides and. Yep. Both sidesism, at least at the very end, when Spencer Tracy leaves the courtroom with an evolution textbook in one hand and the Bible in the other. And that actually honestly kind of rubbed me the wrong way because it felt like it was a gesture towards subtlety in a movie that hadn't been very subtle up towards that point. Yeah. And I, I didn't fully believe the gesture and I didn't fully believe the conclusion either because it kind of felt as though it was equating both sides perfectly when, to be fair, the movie had not been particularly even-handed about talking about the issue in the first place. I, I would have liked to have seen it actually end just a few minutes earlier. So there's mm. before, you know, the Darrow stand in, you know, grabs the Bible and the origin of species and you know walks out of the courtroom. He has an exchange with uh, the H.L. Mencken character, uh, Gene Kelly's character, where up to that point, you know, Gene Kelly's been kind of like sitting off to the sidelines, cracking wise, getting zingers off left and right at the expense of Brian and his fundamentalists. And the way he's framed up to that point in the movie, you're, the audience is obviously supposed to chortle along with him, or mm -hmm. at least sort of being like, yeah, he's got a point. But at the end, Darrow takes him to task a little bit, and he says, you, know, you, you think you're so you know, above it all. You think you're so cynical about people having faith. Maybe you need to tone it down a notch, essentially, is what he says. It's, it's much more eloquent in the screenplay. And I appreciated that moment because it was one of the only times in the film where Kramer maybe set aside his righteousness of you know and his impulse to portray the uh, the townspeople as just backwards fundamentalists who don't know what's good for them, and actually attempted to like attempted to articulate an understanding even if he doesn't agree with them. And if the film had ended there, I would have felt a lot better about how. You know, it maybe tries to thread that needle a little bit better. But I think Sarah's absolutely right that kind of having an end going like, well, I've got the Bible in one hand, Darwin in the other, and it's all going to be okay. It's, <laughs> that's a little glib. Mm -hmm. Well, and and as you said, this this movie is supposed to be a commentary on, well, the play initially was supposed to be a commentary on 
McCarthyism. And for those who, who may not remember from their history classes in high school, Joseph McCarthy was a senator. Uh, and from 1950 to basically 1954, he started these trials, uh, trying to suss out where there were communists in public life, starting with the US government. And this kind of bled over into Hollywood. And then mm-hmm. eventually his downfall when he went after the army in uh, the spring of 1954. They kind of a brutish guy. And the actually his biography that recently came out is called Demagogue. That is the entire title of the book. It <laughs> gives you an idea. And the, the author described, Larry Ty, described his definition of demagogue as bully. Demagogues are people who use their power to bully other people to get what they want. And that's kind of where McCarthy fits. I could talk about McCarthy honestly all day. But in the interest of making this interesting to other people, is there any hint of McCarthyism? Do you how do you see this film, this work of art addressing McCarthyism or how is it not? I can definitely see how watching it here in 2023 you know how it has resonances with the the McCarthy era but you know weirdly i think if it's about mccarthyism i think it's it's only because it's more broadly just kind of about reactionary mindsets hmm. just how in in some ways it is pretty perceptive about how reactionary ways of thinking and acting can take hold of large swaths of people as a result of fear. You know, some they they see evolving perspectives regardless of whether it's actually about evolution as like a dangerous threat to a whole way of life rather than just a a new way of thinking that has to be accommodated or not and that it must be squashed at all costs. I mean like McCarthyism since it came since it you know reached its height like just a few years before this film came out would obviously have been the touchstone for contemporary viewers but you know, even watching it today, I think that there's, it's still, maybe that's why we still keep watching it is every era has its own reactionaries. The reactionaries often want to, in some way, uh, address or suppress certain ways of thinking, whether or not that's justified. It's funny. If, if somebody hadn't told me that this was a film and a play first commenting on McCarthyism, I don't think I would have picked up on it. Even though I've, season three was all about how socialism and communism impacted the American Christian church. And I had read up on McCarthyism, planned an episode that I didn't do because I thought it'd be tedious, even though I was fascinated by it. I don't think I would have picked up on it, which is, it, it was interesting to me having watched this film. And the the play came out only one year later. And, uh, and I saw a bunch of different articles that were linking this and The Crucible, which was also supposedly a commentary on McCarthyism. Mm. There, there were so many differences between McCarthy and William Jennings Bryan. Uh, Bryan was sort of a classic populist, uh, you know, talking about how he could help the, the common man overcome the, the elites, and and McCarthy was really just sort of a bully. I think that actually that title demagogue really fits well with McCarthy because he he would just bully people and and destroyed people's lives. And actually, several people committed suicide rather than face him in a hearing. That This is how much fear this man controlled. Uh, and he you know, got people blacklisted from Hollywood so they couldn't actually work. People like Dalton Trumbo, who uh, mm-hmm. went on to write Spartacus under an assumed name. I, there's a lot to think about. There's a lot to unpack there. But I, the, the, the comparison between the the Matthew Harrison Brady character the you know the the fundamentalist and McCarthy it it just, just doesn't work for me it doesn't 
It just doesn't seem to be right. I understand that there's that spirit that you want to make sure that that public discourse is open and and schools can teach what they need to teach and stuff like that. But it's there's really no comparison between the two guys. Part of me wonders if that's because McCarthyism was so long ago that we're just not as in tune with that particular thread in the culture anymore. When I was watching this movie, it felt very resonant to me on a specific level just because of the very polarized political moment that we're living in right now. And so if I had been told that it had been made three years ago, I would have absolutely believed you and I would have believed that it was a very heavy handed view on what it's like to live in the United States in the 2020s. Obviously, it wasn't made that recently, but I think that there is kind of that seed of truth, accuracy. I'm not sure that those words are are particularly the right ones necessarily, but there is kind of that resonance, right, of that idea of political polarization. And I think if this movie had been made in the 80s, then as Kevin had mentioned, it probably would have resonated pretty well with the satanic panic as well. And maybe that just has to do with how uh, a lot of art and a lot of history is kind of grappling with what came before and then refiguring it in terms that we understand today. So... Maybe the historical inaccuracies don't bother me quite as much either, just because there. This is it's not just a retelling of the Scopes Monkey Trial. It's also an attempt to come to terms with this other event that had happened much more recently that I think people of the time would have been pretty familiar with. So, would you maybe say it's it's sort of like the 1950s version of Don't Look Up? <laughs> yeah, that's entirely possible. I mean, yeah. Don't Look Up seems very clearly about what it's about, uh, that it is sort of a commentary on the, the Trump administration. Although I, my brother and I have talked to several people who did not get that out of the movie. Oh, really? Really interesting. Yeah. Um, they, yeah. They it felt so up. heavy handed to me that like <laughs> I couldn't tell that it was about anything else, honestly. It, it's interesting you, you bring up like Adam McKay because, you know, like Don't Look Up and before that Vice... And before that, the big short, because I think he's actually working in a very similar register to Stanley Kramer in that he really wants to make sure that the audience gets it. Like he really wants to make a specific point about our current moment. And he's going to keep swinging that sledgehammer until you until you buckle, essentially. (laughs) I full disclosure, I'm not a big fan of Adam McKay. And I think maybe I am. So just FYI. Oh, okay. Okay. (laughs) Good well, to know. But go we'll have to have you for seeing and believing sometime. We can, we can have it out there. <laughs> but I, uh, you know, all that aside, though, I think like maybe my reservations with Inherit the Wind are kind of of a piece with my reservations with McKay in that there there comes a point where even if you are working from factual material, if you're so obsessed with turning with, with making a didactic point. And less less interested in actually having a clear-eyed look at the various historical, sociological, personal forces that create these moments. I think you're kind of going to create something that might be effective agitprop, like something that will get people fired up, but that I don't think is a particularly faithful representation of reality. And partly because it encourages the audience to sort of cast themselves on the on the side of the good guys and think like, oh, I'm better than these people. I don't need to worry about looking inside and examining what I might be able to take away and learn from this film myself. It's much more concerned with like making you 
feel pretty self-satisfied about where you're at. And I think Inherit the Wind's big weakness is maybe that, is that you come away from Inherit the Wind's thinking like, yeah, this Brian guy, he would, you know, where does he get off trying to stop truth and science from marching forward when it should really be encouraging viewers to think like, well, what kind of threat to my own worldview and way of life would cause me to act like the townspeople in this movie? And the film never it doesn't seem very interested in provoking that line of questioning the viewer. And that's maybe why I'm kind of hesitant about it as maybe as both history and as art. God is a genius storyteller, and the evidence of this is threaded throughout Scripture. In Christianity Today's new show, Holy Curiosity, with me, Kat Armstrong, we explore storied connections threaded throughout Scripture from the Old Testament to the New. Our first miniseries, Connecting Dinah and the Woman at the Well, welcomes experts like Drs. Tim Mackey and Diane Landberg to give us insight and context into the physical location and meaning of these two stories. These stories will spark holy curiosity in your own faith, because once you see these connections, you can't unsee them. God wastes no person, place, or thing. Listen and subscribe to Holy Curiosity with Kat Armstrong on your favorite podcast platform. As as far as art and history go, what is do you feel like there are responsibilities that artists ought to have when they're creating art and commenting on something? Again, like Adam McKay, I, I enjoy his style of filmmaking, I should say. I don't always agree with his conclusions of things, but I think that I enjoy how gutsy he is and that he has a point of view. And I don't always agree with it, but I think it's it's a fascinating way to go about making a movie. Are there responsibilities that artists have or should have when making a project that will shape how people view history? Mm, that's the eternal question, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> do you One have a good them. answer, Chris? Because I'm not sure I do. <laughs> no. Well, this I, I'm a bit of a Napoleon nut. Uh, I think he's a really fascinating character. And this made me think of one of my favorite paintings that's at the Louvre. It's this painting called Bonaparte Visiting the Plague Victims of Jaffa, which is you know such an alluring name. But it was painted in 1804. Napoleon, when he was on his Egyptian campaign, went up to Jaffa, which is now in Israel, went and visited these plague victims inside of this hospital. They were affected by the bubonic plague and uh, went to go visit these guys, which was not a smart move uh, when you're a leader because he could have gotten the plague. But in the in the the painting, which I'd encourage people to look up, uh, he is the source of light. So all the shadows kind of go away from him in the, mm. the in the painting. And he's holding his hand out very much sort of like God does in uh, the painting of the Sistine Chapel where God's reaching out to Adam mm. and he's reaching out to touch one of the victims of the plague, almost like he's about to heal them. So it's very much like a Christ-like image. And what's really interesting about this is historically, Bonaparte, he did actually go and visit this, this hospital in Jaffa. But as he was leaving the room, he told the doctor to poison all the men after he left to mm. kill them. This painting was actually commissioned by Napoleon as a work of propaganda 
he was hung up there for people to see to kind of dispel the rumors that he had tried to murder his own men. It is it's a really fascinating story. So there there's like propaganda goes way back. <laughs> yeah. It goes way, way back. But it it really made me think about our desires to tell a story and uh, what is our responsibility in history because Napoleon was very much trying to bend history or at least bend public opinion to his uh, his way of thinking and to make him almost again like a Christ like figure. Inherit the wind is is very much trying to make a point uh, that you know we people who want certain things taught in schools are the righteous people and there's there's no. There's no wisdom in understanding what the majority wants their kids to hear in schools, which is very much the thing we're going through now also. But I think it's kind of poignant uh, about this film is that we, we're right now going through these discussions of what should and shouldn't be taught in public schools. And I won't get too deep into what I think about that, but there is this weird balancing act that has to be done in education where we have to decide who gets to, who gets to tell our kids what they learn. Mm. I. I was once on a, I drive a school bus for a living and I, I won't I go too far into this, but I, I took an art class out to like a, a retreat that they did. And one of the teachers was very, uh, I was interested in what I did for the podcast. And when I told her, you know, it's a Christian history podcast. And she said, uh, essentially, you know, like, oh, you know, do, do you talk about how the church basically is just created to control people, which was like super mean. <laughs> but then I, I, what, the, you know, how you think about the comeback after the fact, the comeback mm-hmm. that should have come was like, but you're saying this as a public school teacher. I mean, that's essentially what you do. You are, you are indoctrinating people just with a different thing. And that's, uh, her view was very sort of one-sided on that thing, but that is what public education does. Uh, it is an indoctrination thing, and that's not necessarily bad. They're teaching us about civics. They're teaching us how to be good members of society. They're teaching us math and stuff, but there does have to come this interesting point where we decide what will and won't be taught in schools. And I think that's one of the things that this 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 film just and this play kind of just assume that they're righteous and don't allow any like you said any room for that conversation how will we how will we let different opinions in on this and so in that way the film is also very intolerant even though it's trying to fight intolerance i, I think this kind of gets at that question of what counts as art and what doesn't because i think i i the idealistic side of me would say that art has a duty to tell the truth yeah. Even if it's not necessarily telling something that actually ever happened, it's definitely not under the obligation to even be beautiful. Like art can be very ugly and also very instructive and informative. And yet it's also not art's job to tell us how to think about art, which I think gets at that fuzzy line between, you know, propaganda or actual art. Like the way that you described the painting of Napoleon is is a very beautiful description. And if I hadn't known the background behind it, I, I would have just thought that's a gorgeous painting. And then knowing some of the background and the history and what that painting was designed to try to communicate means that it's essentially founded on lies, right? And so I I don't have a good answer for that. But it does feel as though good art is good at telling the truth, even when it is very deeply uncomfortable and unpleasant to hear. And then you have to kind of parse through, well, what is actually truth? And finding that viewpoint is going to be a very difficult one, especially when you're coming from very different viewpoints. Chris, since you're kind of into history yourself, like that's kind of a historical discipline, right? Like when you read say, Julius Caesar's histories of his own exploits fighting the Celtic Wars, you don't take everything at face value, right? Like Caesar was writing those things for a very specific 
purpose, which was to make himself look good. And so, you know, as, as a reader, you're supposed to read it and sort of get the facts from it, but also recognize that you're seeing things through a very specific lens and engage with it on those terms. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's oftentimes a lot of what, what being a responsible consumer of art is as well, is recognizing the perspective that an artist is coming at a story or an image from, and then having said it in that frame, deciding what is a charitable and truthful reading of it in that context. And what that looks like obviously varies from artwork to artwork. In the context of Inherit the Wind, I think that for all its historical inaccuracies, I would say that it's not so much interested in beating up on specific viewpoint as it is in extolling the virtue of thinking for oneself. Mm. I think that's something that uh, that Henry Drummond says it's at one point is that the the thing that sets mankind apart is that is that we can think for ourselves, we can form ideas, and that that's really what the whole foo-for-a over over the evolution debate is about. I don't think Stanley Kramer really takes his own advice. <laughs> like I think he's <laughs> he he doesn't invite the audience to think very hard about this particular issue. But I think taken at face value, maybe that thesis statement is is a worthwhile one. Well, I, yeah. I'm really interested in what you said. Uh, we, that we the audience should have sort of a charitable view. I wonder coming into yourselves as Christians seeing this movie that is kind of harsh on religion. How do you think we should prepare ourselves for this movie? How do you think we should think about the people who made it? What are, what are your thoughts about that as as an audience response? Oh, man. I mean, I'm coming at it from a pretty interesting perspective because I was homeschooled and was also homeschooled of the flavor that didn't learn evolution as I was being homeschooled. So for me, this kind of felt like an an interesting viewpoint into how somebody else from the outside would have approached that worldview and the decision to teach just creation versus just evolution or some mix of all of those. I think that that can be a little bit tricky. And it was kind of an uncomfortable experience on certain levels because I could see where the movie was coming from. And I could also see like That's not the reasons why I learned what I learned when I was taught what I was taught. And also, I'm in a different place as a person now from where I was when I was in school. I think that that approach of of coming to it with a charitable mindset is is a really important one, though, because it's, it's coming at it and being willing to engage that other person, at least on their terms, in order to try to come to a better understanding of where they're coming from. And then if they're approach is incoherent or if what they're saying like is not actually the truth, then that's where you can really start to engage and, and try to come to a better understanding with them as well. This all sounds very naive as I'm saying it out loud and I don't no. mean for it to. No. But I think it's a turkey balancing act, right? Like You have to be willing to engage with somebody else on their own terms and then also be willing to not seed any ground where ground should not be seeded. If truth is on the line, then that's something that you have to be willing to not give up. But you also have to be willing to do that engagement with grace and with love because without love, you know, we're nothing. Amen. When I'm when I'm approaching a, a work of art, whether it's a painting or a movie, or even when I'm talking with a person, I think there are a lot of parallels between those. Like you said, approach with charity, but also know that the thing that you're seeing at 
in the front is often the public face and not actually what's going on behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. So I, I think it's always good to ask, like, what what led you to get to the point where you wanted to make this or to say this thing or to attack me or what have your opinion, whatever your opinion is. Uh, with the, you know, Inherit the Wind, it, it helps to understand that it was inspired by McCarthyism. When somebody's angry at me like that teacher on the school bus, the she wasn't angry. She was just poking me. But um, when, when she was doing that, and I should have come up with a better response, my, my response should have been to ask what was behind that. Because uh, oftentimes the things that people say are are not really good at communicating what's going on behind the scenes. And I think in a lot of ways, the the Sermon on the Mount has a lot to say about how we should respond uh, when people are angry at us, you know, to turn the other cheek, to pray for those who who, you know, curse you, uh, to bless those who curse you. I think that's a great response. And boy, this has been a great conversation. And I could talk to you both forever, but I don't want to keep you up super late. So <laughs> thank you so much for being on the show. And thank you for your show. Uh, would you would you like to, to plug your, your your podcast? It is called Seeing and Believing. Uh, Sarah mentioned our our tagline uh, when she introduced herself. We, we, say, we like to say that we, we're always searching for the sacred on screen. And we do that every week, pretty much. We've been, we're on episode 360, where we're Seven. doing three, 367 this wow. week. As of recording, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Just search for seeing and believing. You can find us there. Yeah, we'll, we'll keep on trucking. Hopefully mm-hmm. we'll see some, some new faces in our, in our listener mailbag. Before we go, I want to remind you why we discuss this film today. Inherit the Wind as a film and as a play has dramatically shaped how people think about the Scopes trial and Christian fundamentalism. It is historically inaccurate, I think really inaccurate, and that makes a difference. It's impacted how generations of people learn about these events as they're shown this movie in classrooms or when they perform it on stage. I spent this whole season discussing the rise of Christian fundamentalism because I think that the way we talk about it is just not helpful. We usually slap it on things we don't like so we don't have to discuss them. In the end, I personally think that Inherit the Wind is an irresponsible work of art. By trying to make a point about McCarthyism, it willy-nilly picks on fundamentalism without giving it a fair shake. There's no mention of William Jennings Bryan's concerns about social Darwinism, the Leopold and Loeb trial, Nietzsche, or the changing morals of the era. It's a one-sided work of revisionist history. How we deal with that reality is up to us. Rather than feel maligned or think that the whole world hates us, maybe we can use this film as a way to reflect on our own need for humility in this present moment. Can we both stand for truth and also remember to be gracious as well? I think so. The title, Inherit the Wind, comes from Proverbs 11.29. Perhaps the best way to wrap up today is with the beginning of that chapter, talking about the need for truth and a humble heart. The Lord detests dishonest scales but accurate weights find favor with them. When pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with humility comes wisdom. I'd love to know your thoughts about Inherit the Wind and our conversation today. You can post them on social media and tag the podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, or email them to me at trucepodcast at yahoo.com. Thanks again to my guests from the Seeing and Believing podcast. They were a lot of fun. Listen to their show and let me know what you think. 
I'm almost done with this season on the early days of Christian fundamentalism. Soon, I'll have some bonus episodes dropping to emphasize some of the themes from the season. If this season has meant something to you, please consider helping to fund this podcast. It's a one-man show, and it's really hard work to do it full-time. I'm working hard to make Truce my main focus, which would mean bigger and better episodes for you and a breather for me. Help out at trucepodcast.com donate. There you can give via check, Patreon, PayPal, or Venmo. Please rate and review the show on your podcasting app. Truce is a production of Truce Media, LLC. God willing, we'll talk again soon. I'm Chris Starin, and this is Truce.